0: If you remain standing now, as we read God's word together. Uh, These words from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Let us read these words together. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down at his feet. and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you've heard or not, but we have a lot of exciting opportunities here at Acts 2. Uh, There are many things happening, our ministries are growing, things are changing, and we have a lot of exciting opportunities, and one of those I want to spend a few weeks talking to you uh, about, because I think it's an exceptional opportunity, I think it's something that God has called us to, and I think it bears a little bit of explanation. Uh, If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out, they might help guide you through this conversation. Uh, that one of the exciting new opportunities that I believe God has called us to here at Acts 2 is actually to start a church within Acts 2. Uh, And that church within Acts 2 will be called One Church. Uh, We're going to talk about this uh, for the next uh, few weeks. As you can tell, it's the name of the uh, series as well. And so we're going to be talking about what we believe God is calling us to and about this vision that we believe God has given us. And this vision is to start a church within Acts 2. Uh, This won't be like uh, what Acts 2 has done with Connect. A few years prior, Reverend Adam Ricks was brought on staff here at Acts 2 for a year to develop a team. And then uh, later off, we commissioned them uh, to go out into East Edmond and to start an entirely new church, uh, Connect. They are building a building at Sorghum Mill and Coltrane and are doing exceptionally well. It was an incredible ministry, incredible time in the life of Acts 2. But now we believe that we are called to something a little different that we will start a ministry within Acts 2, a church within Acts 2, something that has its own identity, its own uh, system, yet will be a part of this ministry here at Acts 2. It will be called One Church. Uh, the name One Church uh, comes from Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6. Uh, there is one body and the one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. We believe God is calling us to do something here, to start this church within Acts 2, to call it one church. Because in reality, this is all one church. This is all one thing. And not just within Acts 2, but within the church universal, that we believe this starting new things, this starting new churches, this starting new communities is not something exceptionally new. This is something that's happened all along. Ever since the beginning, Jesus was all about starting new things, pushing the boundaries, expanding our vision. And so we believe that even though this may look like something new, in reality, it's anything but. And we kind of look at these kind of things, and and maybe you're like me, and maybe new things make you a little bit nervous. Right when we're asked to do something new, or asked to do something different, something we've never experienced before, we can get a little anxious about that. Um, maybe you're like me, and, and our tendency is to do things what the way we've always done them, right? The way we've always done it. Uh, the truth is, we've worshipped in this building uh, for two years now. Uh, for 2 years we have been here and and this was our new thing uh, once upon a time and even though we've been here for only 2 years we can get this concept that we can just we can keep doing things the way we've always we can keep doing things the way we've always done them even if it's only been for 2 years right we can get this concept within us and and, and maybe it's not just within the church maybe it's in, within your own life Right? Maybe uh, you were asked to maybe volunteer in, in a children's program or with the youth or, or teach a Sunday school or lead a small group or something like that, and, and maybe you've never done that before, and that can be anxiety-driven. Right? You say, I've never done that before. I don't know what that looks like. Or maybe you've experienced, you know, somebody wanting to go to a new place, right? Maybe a new vacation spot. And and, and that can be anxiety-driven, especially if it's out of the United States. And you think, you know, I've never been there before. I don't know what to do whenever I get there or who to talk to or where to go. And we can get this concept that we've never done that before. And it can start to create this fear within us. Or maybe you've experienced a new job. And have the anxiety of trying to figure out new routines and new people, new systems and new processes. And and all that can make us a bit nervous. Or maybe you've moved to a new neighborhood or a new city or even a new state. These things tend to make us nervous, but I think that's where God calls us to. I think God calls us beyond our comfort level. Each and every ten- time, God calls us just a little bit further to take just one more step, so that we can feel just a little bit uncomfortable, just a little bit anxious, so that we might fully rely on God. That's what Jesus' ministry was all about. It was about this idea of expanding the kingdom of God. That's what we read about in the Gospel of Mark. Throughout Jesus' life, we read of him doing ministry uh, mostly around the Sea of Galilee. Um, you can see it up here. And Jesus does this ministry here. And, and you can see that on the west side of the Sea of Galilee uh, is Galilee, is, is the right side of the sea, right? It is the correct side, is, is the place you want to be, especially if you're Jewish. This is where all the good Jewish people are. But on the other side is this other space. Uh, out towards the Decapolis, the region of Tyre, uh, what the Gospel of Mark calls, and this is the wrong side. These are where the non-Jews are, the, the Hellenized people are, the, the Greek people are, the people who have adapted to our captors. And Greece will later um, encroach upon the land, and, and those people who have adopted their lifestyle will live on this side of the sea. And Jesus spends most of his ministry right around this sea, flirting with the idea that we might actually do ministry with these people on the other side. And so Jesus, earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, um, is walking around the Sea of Galilee. He turns around and the disciples tell him, there's 5,000 people here, Jesus. We can't feed them all. Well, what do we want to do? We, we ought to send them out into the cities, out into the countryside so they can find their own food so that they might get fed. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They say, we don't have anything. And he said, well, what do you have? And they find a boy with just a a few uh, loaves of bread and a few fish. And Jesus blesses it, and it feeds the multitude of people. In fact, they have food left over. Jesus does this along the Sea of Galilee. A little bit later, Jesus sends the disciples across the sea without him, and he stays on the beach, and then these uh, great waves come, and this storm comes over the disciples, and they fear for their lives, and they look out over the sea, and they see Jesus walking on the water. They fear it as a ghost, and Jesus calls out to them and, and assures them that it's him. And Jesus is constantly flowing with this idea that we might go to the other side, that we might actually do ministry with these people. And then a little bit later, Jesus goes about as far as you can get without actually crossing the border. He goes to a town called Gennesaret. And there he finds a blind man, and Jesus touches him and heals him of his blindness. And then we come to the passage we read just a little while ago, Mark 7, and finally we read that Jesus has made it over to the other side of the sea, that he's gone to the region of Tyre. And while Jesus is there, Jesus is eating with the disciples. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes that had come from Jerusalem gather around Jesus, and they notice that his disciples were eating with defiled hands, there was this ceremony that you were supposed to perform every time you, you, before you ate. You were supposed to perform this, this ceremony, this ritual. And what they had noticed is that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself had not performed this ceremony. And they saw that they, had, they were eating with defiled hands without washing them. And so the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. And then Jesus says this, You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. And then he goes further, he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Have you ever rejected the commandments of God in order to keep your own tradition? Have you ever heard a word from God, felt a calling from God to go and to do something? Maybe it's new, maybe it's expansive, maybe it's something you've never done before and and you feel this calling from God and, and your first thought is, I've never done that before. Right? I, I've never gone that far. I, I, I wouldn't want to be, you know, like that. In fact, I've never done that. Let me hold on to my tradition. Maybe you felt a calling to go to a mission. Maybe even out of the United States. And you thought, I've never done that before. In fact, I don't know anything about construction. I don't think I would be any help. Or maybe it's even a calling as simple as to reach out to your next door neighbor. To offer them love and encouragement. Have you ever rejected the commandments of God in order to keep your own tradition? I know that I have. And in fact, I I don't think it's so much tradition as traditionalism. There's a great great quote by uh, Yaroslav. Pelican, and he says this, that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is is living on the faith of those who have passed on before us, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is this idea that all we have to do is what we've always done, right? All we have to do is what we've always done, and if something goes wrong in the process, it's because we haven't done what we've always done well enough. Right? We just got to go back. Maybe there was something we missed. Maybe we just have to be a little bit more traditionalist. Maybe we've got to just do what we've always done a little bit better. But tradition is living on the faith of those who have passed before us. Of taking the dreams, the values of those who have gone on before us and living those out in the world. Tradition is taking this expansive kingdom mindset. This boundary-pushing mindset that Jesus had from the very beginning and living that out in the world. That's why Christ died. Not so that we could just do what we've always done, but so that we could do what Jesus set out to do in the first place, to bring God's kingdom to this earth. And that's what Jesus does with the Syrophoenician woman. Because he pushes the boundaries of the idea that these Pharisees had. You you can tell earlier in the passage that that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. They're upset with him because he's not holding to their values. He's not holding to their tradition. And and, and the Pharisees had a specific job in tradition. Uh, Pharisees are defined in in this way. They were laymen who were serious about interpreting and keeping religious law, including the oral tradition. What we read about Pharisees is that most of them came from the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and, and around uh, 537, Judah was taken into Babylonian exile. They were taken into exile, and, and they w- were attempted to wipe away their tradition. The Babylonians came in, they tried to take away their religion, take away their identity. And what the Pharisees did is they came together and they said, we need to keep this. And if we can't write it down, if, if we can't keep all of these scrolls, then we'll keep an oral tradition. We will talk about it, and we will share it with our children and our grandchildren. We will speak it over and over again until we have it memorized. And we will have these rites and practices that we will keep even in exile. When we are far from our homeland, we will do this thing. And the Pharisees did it for 50 years. They were able to keep their tradition. And and they were responsible for upholding their faith, for keeping their faith until they were allowed to come back to the promised land. They were allowed by King Cyrus to come back home. And when they arrived back home, they built the temple again and they established their worship again. Yet they held to these traditionalist mindset, these rites, these rituals that Jesus says are far from me. And it's these people that Jesus upsets. Because they've worked very hard their entire lives to keep their are ordered to keep the law, to keep what they believe God had chosen them to do. And here Jesus is pushing all of that away to saying that's not important. What's important are these people who do not know the love of God. And Jesus reaches out to the Syrophoenician woman. He goes to the region of Tyre and, and, and Scripture says that she's Greek, that she's of Syrophoenician, which means that she's both, uh, she has both Syrian and Phoenician uh, heritage. She's not Jewish. She's a Gentile. She's a Greek. First of all, she has no business talking to Jesus. She has no business even approaching and coming into the vicinity of Jesus, let alone asking him a question, let alone asking him to heal her daughter. This woman has no right to be near this Jewish rabbi to ask him anything. And here she does, approaching Jesus and being so bold as to even ask him to heal her daughter. And Jesus says something pretty astounding, right? We probably, you know, don't, when we think of Jesus, we don't hear him saying these kinds of words in our mind. But this is what the Gospel of Mark records. Uh, Mark says, Jesus said, stand in line and take your turn. The children get fed first. If there's any left over, the dogs get it. This is Eugene Peterson's The Message version of Jesus' words. And what Jesus is doing is reminding the woman of the way that most people thought in this time. Right? The Jewish people believed in this time that God was for them and against everyone else. Right? God was for me and against all of those other people out there who are not me. And when God sends the Messiah, God will send the Messiah for me, and the Messiah will be against them, and and the Messiah will perform miracles for me, and then if there's anything left over, if there's any time left over, then then maybe he'll perform miracles for them. And Jesus reminds the woman about this established order. Jesus reminds her, you know what they believe, right? You, You know what they think about you, that the ministry that I have is supposed to go to them. And then if there's any left over, I guess you can have some. Jesus reminds the woman about the established order, and she says this. Of course, but don't the dogs on the table get scraps dropped by the children? The woman remembers, of course, but with you, Jesus, there's always enough. I know about the established order. I know the way they think about you. But I know that with you, Jesus, there is always enough. And Jesus says, You are right. On your way, your daughter is no longer disturbed, the demonic affliction is gone. She went home and found her daughter relaxed in the bed, the torment gone for good. Because in Jesus there is always enough, friends. There's never a line, a pecking order with Jesus, that in Jesus there is always enough for everyone. That I think there is so much to glean out of this passage, and I think two things in particular. That one of them is that Jesus listens to those who love others, right? That this woman, again, had no right talking to Jesus. This woman had no business coming even in the vicinity of Jesus. And here she is asking him to heal her daughter. And she was so bold to do, do so because of the love that she had for her daughter. Because of the love that she felt for her. And because of that love and compassion that she had, Jesus listens to her. I think something else exceptional about this passage is that Jesus opens the kingdom when our own starts to shrink. Right, that their mindset of the kingdom of God was very narrow. Right? It is just us, Jesus. If you do any miracles, it should be just for us. And, and, if, and if there's any time left over, if there's any energy that you have left over, then maybe it can go to them. And when Jesus says that there's always enough, there there is always plenty here, that Jesus expands this kingdom mindset to be not just one people, but all people for all time. That Jesus expands this kingdom whenever ours starts to shrink. Friends, and this is why we are starting a church Because Jesus continually expanded the kingdom of God. That's why we are starting a church. Here's what we know about an average, at least United Methodist church and, and most other churches in general. Is that uh, most churches are planted near a neighborhood or near many neighborhoods. And, and, and at the very beginning they do very well because people from those neighborhoods start to come to that church. But then gradually over time, those people who who initially came to that church get promotions in their jobs and they move up a little bit. Maybe they'll make a little bit more money and they don't have to live in those starter home neighborhoods anymore. They don't have to live where they first planted roots. And so they move maybe to a nicer neighborhood, maybe across town or uptown or away from the church. And instead of when they move going to a different church that's closer to their homes, they start to commute. They start to come back to that original church, which is amazing. And we love it when that happens. But what we know is that whenever families do that, when they move away from the original community that the church reached, and they still come back to the church, that means that when people move into those first neighborhoods, and when they move into those starter homes, and they come to that neighborhood church, what they see is people not from their neighborhood, but people from outside. And maybe they feel a little bit awkward. Maybe they feel a little bit uncomfortable. And here's what we know uh, about Acts 2 is that we have many uh, neighborhoods just really right across the street. Uh, to the south here at 2nd and Penn is Valencia, uh, where my wife and I and our family live. Um, just a little bit north is the Point Apartment Complex. Uh, La Sonata is just north of that, Scissor Landing, and Settlers Crossing up here at Coffee Creek in Penn. These are the neighborhoods that are right across from us. And, and here are the number of families that are members here at Acts 2 that live in these neighborhoods. In Valencia, there's eight families, my wife and I included. La Sonata, four. Sister Hill Landing, one. The Point Apartment Complex, there are zero families that live in the Point that are members of this church. Settlers Crossing is doing all right. We've, we uh, have many families there. We're still reaching out to them. But here's what we know. The, the Point Apartment Complex, a, a, a stone's throw away from the church. There are zero member families there. That, that Acts 2 is doing okay. We are not in dire straits. But if this was left unchecked, if we looked at these numbers, if we looked at these people and did nothing about this, then I believe we wouldn't be doing what God has called us to do. That these are the families that we want to reach. These are the people that we believe God has placed on our hearts. And these people are the reason that we are starting a church. What we know, what we know about a five-mile radius around Acts 2 is that just within five miles, there are 28,102 people who are non-religious, who have no faith, who have no relationship with Jesus Christ. These 28,000 people are the reason we are starting a church. And what's more is we have a sense of maybe why those people don't go to church. At least the top three reasons that these people have listed for not attending the church. Uh, Now, you have in your notes, uh, like, the first answer. And I want you to just try to guess at what that is, right? It's religious people are too, what? Judgmental. Religious people are too judgmental. Maybe you can understand why they think that. Maybe you can even empathize with that, and maybe you've even experienced that. The second reason people do not attend a church is because religion is too focused on money. Maybe they've been burned in the past around conversations. They believe religion is too focused on money. And the third reason is that they do not trust religious leaders. This is the reason people don't go to church. And it's the reason that we are starting a church. Because we are going to start a church where people do not feel judged. Where people can feel loved and accepted within a community of faith that people can feel this judgment free. That we are starting a church that when we talk about money, we will talk about the resources that God has given us. This ability to give up of our power to God and see what God can do with it. And that we are going to be a people that others can trust, that others can love, that others know that when we speak to them, we are not judging them, we are not lying to them, that we are speaking out of this deep compassion that we have for them and they will know that because they have seen us in our neighborhoods. They they will have come to our house for dinner that they will see us interact with our families. That they will know that we are genuine people on whom God has placed a specific call to love others. This is why we are starting a church. And so your action step today, friends, is to simply pray. I, I would encourage you to pray specifically for Valencia, The Point, La Senada, and Cisard Landing. Pray for those families in those neighborhoods. That God would already prepare a relationship. That, that God would go before us as we go knock on doors, as we throw parties in their neighborhoods and in their parks. As, as we prepare to make conversation with them, that God will already be there. That God will already be working. That God is already active in those neighborhoods. And that God would show us whom He wants us to initiate conversation, how He wants us to continue those relationships. And then I'll also encourage you to pray specifically about three people who who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are starting a church not just for other church people. We are starting a church for people who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to pray for about three people that God has placed in your lives who do not have a relationship with Jesus. And, 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 and don't do anything further than pray for right now. And, and God would show you a, a way to invite them over to your house maybe to, to watch a game or to have dinner with your family, to continue a conversation with them, and then maybe eventually later on to invite them to church or invite them into a relationship. I hope that you would maybe write those names down or have them just emblazoned in your mind, that you would continue to reach out to them in love and care. And I hope and I pray that as you continue to pray about those, that you could even hand those names to me and to Mark as we can continue to pray for them as well. As we build a church, continue about the work that God has done to expand the kingdom of God. Because I believe it's what God has called us to do. Just a couple of weeks ago, our country experienced one of the worst mass shootings that the United States has ever had at the Pulse nightclub a man walked in armed with an assault rifle and killed 50 people and that happened almost a year after another young man in Charleston walked into an Emmanuel African-American church and killed nine. That, I spent time in prayer thinking about these two events and, and how both of these shootings happened in, in places that other people thought were safe. That other people knew they could go to and and feel this judgment free, that they felt they could go to and trust other people, that both of these places others thought were safe spaces. And these tragedies occurred within them. I spent a lot of time in thought on prayer on safe spaces. And how our country is running out of them. Things keep happening in places that we thought were safe. That our country is running out of safe spaces, friends. And that's why we're starting a church. To create another safe. Space. Let us pray.